This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I don't know the truth. Hello and welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me on the show again. This week, we're talking about the opioid epidemic and drug use in America in general. Now, this is a really tough subject. Uh, A lot of people are dying of opioid use right now. People I know have died of overdoses. Probably people you know have as well. Uh, But it's also one of the most misunderstood subjects in America. And today, we have an absolutely fascinating guest to tell you about it. I met our guest today, Nabdas Gupta, at the Time 100 Next Gala, where we were both being honored uh, for being, I don't know, interesting people doing interesting things. It was a pretty neat event. It was a Tuesday night. Everyone got pretty drunk, and we had a lot of really interesting conversations. I love talking to strange and interesting people about the weird shit that they know at parties that I don't know. And I had the most fascinating conversation with Nap. See, I always wanted to know if fentanyl is this new drug sweeping the country. It's sometimes used in medical context, but now it's causing overdoses all across the country. Why don't we just stop the pharmaceutical industry from making it? Because that's what I assumed was the source. And he told me, no, actually, fentanyl is not a new drug. It's a very, very old opioid. It's been around for almost 100 years, and it's very easy to synthesize. But what happened is, since we cracked down on the other less potent uh, opioids, um, like pharmaceuticals and heroin, the market moved to fentanyl, and the cartels started shipping fentanyl across the border in response to enforcement. That one story completely reframed the way I think about fentanyl and the opioid crisis in America, and at that moment I realized, I gotta have this guy on the show, so we have him on today. But before we get to our interview, I wanna remind you that if you wanna support this show, you can do so on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash Conover. Five bucks a month gets you every episode of the show ad-free. We got a lot of other great community features as well. And if you like stand-up comedy, please come see me. I am on tour this January. I'm going to Arlington, Virginia, New York, Portland, Maine, Philly, Boston, Chicago, Atlanta, Nashville. Head to adamconover.net for tickets and tour dates. And now let's get to this interview. I cannot think of a better person to help us break down and understand this weird Wild West period in American drug culture and drug use. Nabarun Dasgupta is an epidemiologist and street drug scientist at the UNC Injury Prevention Research Center. Please welcome Nab Dasgupta. Nab, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. It's awesome to be here. It was really fun meeting you at the Time 100 Next Gala. We had a wild night and I talked to you enough. I was like, I got to have this guy back on the podcast when we're both a little bit more sober to talk about drugs. (laughs) Sounds like a perfect plan. What could go wrong? (laughs) 
Uh, I mean, the cool thing about this event was that every single person at, the, at this event did something really cool. J- just tell us a little bit about what it is that you do uh, before we get into it. So I'm a street drug scientist. I spend all my time thinking about drugs at work and um, our lab. <laughs> so uh, do a I'm lot a- of people, but you you actually, that you're not breaking the rules when you're doing it. You're supposed to be. No, I was probably like one of those, like one of those kids who talked too much about drugs when we were younger and I made it into a career. So, um, the, uh, the lab I'm at the university of North Carolina in Chapel Hill and, um, our lab tests street drug samples from around the country. And I also, um, started a nonprofit to get the overdose reversal, uh, medication out to, uh, out to out in bulk to community-based groups that are distributing it to people who use drugs. And this overdose reversal medication I know has been a really big deal. It saved a ton of lives. When I used to do homelessness street engagement, you know, I, I, there was a period for a couple of years I was doing it and every weekend. We were bringing that stuff out like crazy, just being like, please, uh, please take this, use it if, if you know anybody who, who's having an overdose. Because literally in the time that I did it, I saw multiple people die, not in front of me, but you'd mm-hmm. show up the next week and they wouldn't be there. What happened to that guy? Oh, yeah, he overdosed last week. Um, yep. it, it's It's really an incredibly dangerous time uh, for street drugs out there. Uh, but, you know, what, what is, uh, from your perspective on the ground, what is our normal narrative about that epidemic, as it's often called, get wrong? Yeah, so I think, like, at the outset, let's, let's like, acknowledge that there's a lot of people who have lost family members to overdose and friends, and that yeah. this is, like, a ser- deadly serious topic, right? And there's still, you know like something like one out of every four out of every 10 people in the U S know someone who's died of an overdose right now. And it's, you know, like we have to treat this topic with some respect. And at the same time, drugs have also kept people alive and have, you know, made their lives better. And so there are people who benefit from some of the street drugs too. So I think it's important to kind of keep those both frames in mind. Um, I think this is important as like, you know, as we think about, what we what we currently believe about how we got here to this point where there's over a hundred thousand people a year dying. Um and I think like the traditional narrative is something along the lines of these a small group of prescription opioid co- pharmaceutical companies started making these pills, started marketing them very aggressively, and then ended up like sparking this problem. And then it kind of, you know, the market forces switched it from pills to heroin and from heroin to fentanyl and fentanyl to worse. Um, and that that's like kind of a general broad strokes, but it what's interesting though is like those events that we're talking about kind of happened like 20 years ago. Mm. And so the idea that like pharmaceutical marketing can explain everything that has happened over the last two decades is not really plausible. There's much more going on. Like those companies really did do something terrible and deserve yeah, the, uh, the the criticism and penalties that they have faced and probably, frankly, deserve more. But that <laughs> yep. can't be the whole story. No. And the more we like rely on this narrative that it was like this one thing that happened a long time ago that we have no control over, those kinds of mindsets are like cause us to right now feel like we can't do anything about the problem. You're, so, you're unfortunately criticizing like the entire way that I tell nonfiction stories, which is that <laughs> why are things the way they were they are today? Well, because of one thing that happened 20 to 100 years ago. And let me tell you about it. That's literally my entire fucking shtick now. So uh, <laughs> right, wait, here's glad- my version of that. 
Uh, okay, great. Well, well yeah, okay. t- uh, complicated for me. Tell me uh, what what is the more interesting story or truer story? So, like, I mean, so it's, it's, it's awesome you said 100 years ago because, like, the if you look back at the old public health journals and medical journals from, like, literally 110 years ago, you'll see people saying the same exact thing, that there are doctors who are misprescribing opioids, that people are getting addicted, that they're overdosing. Mm. It's, like, literally the same words and it's all like you know the marketing of the of the snake oil and the irresponsible prescribing so because all these drugs were that was around when opioids were first marketed right like uh heroin was originally a bayer product am i right about that that's right it's like the the exact same story of what we have today yep yeah heroin is a perfect example because there's been this kind of like arms race of making of trying to find better molecules uh, than the ones that we have because of the abuse problem. Right. So Mm -hmm. like heroin was developed as like a less addictive, even though they didn't use the word addictive, but that was the concept, a less addictive form of morphine. So morphine came first. There were problems with it. So they made heroin. Right. But I I think of heroin as being worse than, isn't morphine what they now give people who are trying to get off of heroin? Sometimes in some countries. Yeah. But there's, but it's, but heroin's like fascinating because like a hundred years ago, the top causes of death, right. In the U S were like respiratory illnesses, cancer and diarrheal diseases from infections. Right. Mm. So if you had a medicine that could stop cough, alleviate pain and plug people up, wouldn't that be a miracle drug? Right. Like so so the fact, the fact that you can't, shit when you're on heroin was like a part of the point it wasn't a bad side effect it was (laughs) hilarious like yeah yeah and a great advantage of this is that you won't be able to shit that's uh great wow so same with like methamphetamine was created as a less abusable form of amphetamine so it's like you know it's like the pharmaceutical industry keeps doing this the street chemists why do they keep inventing worse versions of the thing they already have thinking it's gonna be better that's like that's horrible. It's horrible to do that. Yeah, no, uh, I know that, you know, DDT was kind of bad. How about Agent Orange? Like, it's it's <laughs> like it's just getting worse every time. Right. I mean, it's like it's a really good point. Like what happens in the street drug market is really reflected in what happens in the consumer product space. Uh-huh. So if you think about like if, if the question is, is like, why is there fentanyl? Why are we getting new things beyond fentanyl? You know what I just saw an ad for was a Doritos flavored liquor. <laughs> Why the fuck would there be a Doritos flavored liquor, right? Right. And this is the same thing that's happening with the market. There is experimentation. There's people's tastes are changing. There is new things that are coming that the, the uh, market is demanding. So, so how does this uh, complicate, you know, the story that we're normally told about Purdue and, you know, fentanyl and, and uh, opioids in the last 20 years? Uh, to know that it started a hundred years ago. So it's, I mean, it's job security if you're in this field, because you just know this is all going to repeat, but on a, right. Um, But on a, on a very practical level, it's, we need to kind of move beyond those narratives, acknowledge that they happened and then really figure out what's happening on the ground today so that we can come out with solutions for today and not from two decades ago. Got it. So what, is happening today. I mean, uh, you read all of these horrible headlines about the fentanyl epidemic. Like I said, from the own, from my own limited, you know, volunteer work on the ground, I've seen it myself. I know 
I have friends who work in city government here in LA who who describe how bad the problem is. How bad is it from your point of view? It's bad. I mean, the street drug supply right now is so crappy that it, you know, it's not, it's not it's like nothing we've seen in decades. Mm. And there's kind of two fa- like the biggest problem with the street drug supply is that it changes so much. It's the variability that is what leads to overdoses. So if you have just like the the chemicals that are in there, some are more potent than others. If you're used to using a certain amount and then you then the supply changes on you and you don't realize it, you may shoot the same, you know, volume of dope, but it has twice as much punch and right. it makes you overdose, right? So that variability is actually a large part of what's killing people. And I, I- I find it really fascinating that you describe the problem as being one of the supply being too variable or there's a problem with the supply, because I think a lot of people's framing would be there's too much drugs out there. There's too many people doing the drugs or et cetera, that there is a supply at all. But you're pointing out that like, hey, the supply chain is actually fucked up. It changes too often. It's a crappy supply like there's a lot of bad shit in it that maybe shouldn't be. And that sort of implies that your solution, your first solution might be, hey, we need a better, more consistent, less uh, tainted or or less cut street drug supply or something along those lines. Is that the case? Yeah, I think in the immediate, in the immediate, in the immediate solutions, like that has to be on the table. Like, it, I mean, what's really fascinating is like, we have this broad narrative with kind of these like huge broad strokes. But when you actually look at places where there's spikes in overdoses, those spikes in overdoses like on a local level happen and they go back down. And when you go and actually investigate what causes those spikes in overdose, you see the same story over and over again of a particular potent batch of 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 powder dope or pills or whatever comes on, people aren't expecting it, the overdoses go up, and then either the supply gets taken away and kind of renormalized or people learn to adjust to it. And so it's, you know, it's the variability. So the very street drug variability is one half of it. The other half is people's tolerances to the drugs are also constantly changing. And so mm. if you are used to taking like, I don't know, say you know, one dose a day and then, but you don't realize you're getting like a double or triple dose, you're going to start like feeling sick if you don't get two or three doses. And then you're going to up how much you're taking to compensate for that and go back and forth. And it's that variability and tolerance that is really kind of fluctuates with the street level stuff. And so it's not just about controlling and safe supply, but it is also about you know, how much people are using. And yeah, yeah, there is too much, there is too much drug use. Like this kind of, in a lot of ways, like people are, I mean, if you're overdosing, that means you're taking too much, right? Like at a, at a very individual level. And as a society, we're using these medications and these substances to alleviate other kinds of pain that we're, that we're experiencing. And when you go back to that narrative of the prescription opioid uh, epidemic, then you're looking at phys- you're talking about physical pain. And mm. I, I mean, I started doing this work because I was working at a cardboard box factory in Maine, where I grew up. And um, cool I was-, <laughs> was was it? I mean, was it fun making the cardboard boxes? We can talk about that for one second. Was that a cool? Because I'm 
Because I don't know. I get so many cardboard boxes at my house and I'm like, somebody's got to make all these fucking boxes. Right. And it was like this specialized factory where it's like, you know how in the grocery store you see apples on those like purple wavy cushions or, uh-huh. and then it was like so long ago that it was like, you CD. made those. I made those. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love finding some interesting detail that was entirely off the topic of the podcast. Please go on. But I would go in and I was, you know, it was this line job. Temp- I was a temp worker and I would go in and there was like, th- like, these three dudes who would go into the into the bathroom right before break. I mean, right before the shift started, and you knew that you weren't allowed to go in there at that time because they'd be going in, taking an oxycontin, crushing it up, and cutting it up into three, and taking turns snorting it. So we knew mm. that was their time. We couldn't go in there. And in talking with them about it, um, it was like they had been working these line jobs for decades and had literally mangled limbs right from machine work and they had like they were in terrible pain most of the time and of course this is a shitty job that didn't have health insurance and pt and any of that right so they were using it to provide for you know to get through the day provide for their families at the same time during smoke breaks um they would also talk about hey can i get an extra oxy i'm going out on the boat this weekend and, you know, want to feel a little bit extra good, right? Uh-huh. So it was this, like, even within the same individual, you hear both sides of it with the same molecule. A boat doesn't seem like the best place to do oxy. I just want to say that's like, you should have your wits about you. You know, you might need to, <laughs> you might, uh, you're, when you're on the open seas, uh, look, I guess people, in international <laughs> waters, people get a little crazy. Um but I, I've also heard, you know, we did a segment on Adam Ruins Everything years ago about the opioid ed- epidemic. And a lot of it was the was that sort of narrative that has now become very standard about, um, you know, Purdue Pharmaceutical and, and you know, the opioids, et cetera. But I did hear from some people who said, hey, you know, one of the things you didn't cover is that a lot of people have real, real pain that these drugs are sort of the only treatment for. And because of the crackdown that you're talking about. Uh, I can no longer get those drugs and now I live with chronic pain with with no way to alleviate it. That that's a real, and there was a great piece in Harper's a number of years ago called, I think, The Pain Refugees. It was mm-hmm. very difficult to read, but it was an article about a bunch of people who had a, they had one of these doctors who was arrested or lost his license or whatever um, for giving out you know drugs too freely. But a lot of his patients actually were in desperate need of these drugs and had no place to get them. And now suddenly they're living with the most excruciating back pain. Um, so I'm really glad that you brought it to, Hey, pain is real and people have it. And these drugs do treat it. That's right. And they, like we, we do in our team at UNC, we do studies with pain patients who have been cut off from their medications and seeing what happens and the rates of suicide among people who had previously had their chronic pain stably managed are and then got cut off by doctors for whatever reason, like those rates of suicide are real and they're high and they're heartbreaking. And Mm -hmm. we hear, I mean, I think that's also, you know, it's like they, a lot of times chronic pain patients get treated as like collateral damage to this like bigger societal problem of overdose, but people's identities change. And if you're going to cut off access to people, you're kind of forcing them into street purchasing I mean, the other, so we just published a study um, from Kentucky, using data from Kentucky. And what we found was like the date of the, from the last prescription dispensed for an opioid 
to the time when people overdosed and like the small portion of people that that happened to was about two to three years. Wow. So a lot of times people are like looking to the street for two to three years to manage pain after being cut off from a prescription opioid. And as bad as those prescription opioids, you know, even if we say, yes, those caused a huge problem, at the very least they were regulated by the government. And so you knew what was in them every time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds like the argument that you're making about the supply and, you know, the variability and and the, the unknowability of the supply, if you're an average drug user, seems like a huge argument for legalization, right? Because, well, when when it's legalized, it will at least be regulated as, you know, weed is here in California. For, well, we could talk about the problems with with uh, weed regulation, right? Uh, there's there's plenty of problems with it. But I know that I go to my local dispensary. I know what's in it, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I have enough confidence um, in this particular spot, right? Because of uh, what the legal regime is in California. And uh, there is not that for for opioids. In fact, we've gone in the other direction because of uh, what, you know, the 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 normal narrative about it. Uh, but if it were legalized, we would have less people dying, perhaps. I, I, what's your thought on that? Yeah, that's I mean, I think that's the right direction. Um, but I think there's a lot of nuance into into like how that actually happened. So in of Canada, right. So in Canada, for example, they tried to get people who had you know, failed on other forms of drug treatment onto a drug called hydromorphone or Dilaudid and as like a replacement for heroin or fentanyl. And it like pharmacologically, molecularly, it seemed like a really good switch. It's about the same potency as heroin um, is hydromorphone. But what like the number of pills that people had to take every day to get to the same level of the street dope was such a high pill burden that people dropped out of that program, even though wow. they could get it for free, right? So it's like we- They're like, just like, ah, oh, I got to swallow a whole bottle every day. I'm right. not doing this. I'm going to Johnny on the corner. He gives it to me straight. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I mean, legalization sounds good in theory. And there's like, but but just like, there's going to be, just like with the street drug market, there's going to be commercial interests, right? That are going to- be in there and manipulating that market and manipulating that manipulating that conversation too. That's the uh, as there was with uh, prescription opioids, right? Which we have a problem with. We we have yep. gigantic corporations manipulating the market and hurting people for profit. That happened. Yeah. But now we've overcorrected and now people are driven to street drugs where we also have people manipulating people for profit, but they're doing it by adulterating, by you know the supply changing too quickly. Uh, this is th- now. This is a very tricky problem. Uh, <laughs> well, look, I, I want to ask you more specifically about fentanyl, but we got to take a really quick break. But we'll be right back with more Nabdas Gupta. As a factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service in today's digital landscape. You know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. 
Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you wanna safeguard yourself like that and live with the peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com Adam. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Okay, we're back with NAB. Uh, I want to talk more specifically about fentanyl because, uh, and when we're talking about the drug supply, uh, the thing that everybody knows is fentanyl is in everything. Uh, there was a case recently in the last couple of years here in LA where I believe a kid in public school, or might have been a private school, a kid in primary school uh, died uh, because you know they took what they thought was a Xanax or some other sort of normal drug from a friend's parents' uh, bottle and it turned out there was fentanyl in it, this kid died. And so suddenly people are going, oh my God, do I have to like tell my kids about fentanyl now when they're in high school? I was also talking to a friend uh, before a party. He was just having a birthday party. He was like, I gotta go test my drugs for fentanyl before the party so that we gotta make sure they're safe. I was like, that's kind of wild to me that at just a average party that I would go to, people would be concerned about that. I was like, maybe those, maybe I won't do any drugs at your party, even though you've tested them. <laughs> you know, it's, it, this stuff is like really reaching the public, right? So we have this perception that fentanyl is like sweeping the country and it's infecting all these parts of life that we don't normally think of drugs like this as touching. Why is that and where did it come from? Oh, that's a great question. So I can, let me start with where is it? So we recently published a study looking at how much fentanyl is in Coke and meth. Uh, across the country. So we looked at like 25 states uh, from samples that we had tested in my own lab. And what we found was that there was like grossly different levels of of fentanyl in Coke uh, across the country. Mm. So it was lower in the Pacific Northwest, lower on the West Coast than it was on the East Coast, where in places like New York um, and along kind of like the big cities on the East, you're talking Are about- Are you putting like, out like a where to do Coke guide? Like where's the I'm safest- about where not to do Coke. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, be, don't, don't, you know, don't do Coke anywhere. If I, we're on YouTube here. I'm trying to be uh, uh, t trying to be safe for the kids. Uh, yeah, it's it's dangerous. It is. It is. And but like in the Pacific North, but it's also important to point out places where there are low contamination because not because it's like an advertising, you know, for their tourism, but it's more like the folks on the ground who are doing the prevention messaging shouldn't be wasting their time trying to prevent something that isn't really happening there. 
Um, there's like plenty of other shit, like plenty of mm. just fundamental problems with fentanyl and potency that really, um, like in the Pacific Northwest, like when we were doing that study, our colleagues from the Pacific Northwest were like, we really aren't seeing it here. It's like 3% of the Coke samples and meth samples in Washington state um, had fentanyl in it. Whereas in like New York, it was like, in New England, it was like 20%. Uh, wow. So those kinds of nuances matter. So you're doing like drug market weather. You're like the fentanyl <laughs> is sweeping through the Northeast. Everybody be careful. Get your test kits. But in the Pacific Northwest, you guys can can rest easy. Uh, that I mean, it's really fascinating that we have to look at it on that level because most people don't have uh, don't even understand that there could be differences in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not like, oh, you know, like go use it without any you know, without any concerns, it's like you, you have exceptions happening. People buy stuff online. People, you know, get on planes with drugs all the time and drugs move around the country. So, you know, the trends change, um, but there are like in the Pacific Northwest, for example, we see particular kinds of benzodiazepines or benzos, which are like um, in the family of Valium or Alprazolam or Xanax. Um, the ones that we're seeing in the Pacific Northwest are more potent um, than the ones we would see in other parts of the country. And sometimes we'll get calls from uh, physicians at hospitals in North Carolina being like, this you know, patient shows this like really weird kind of withdrawal. We don't know what it is. It's not showing up on any of our medical you know, blood tests. And we test the actual drugs and find out, yeah, this is this weird combination of new molecules, often these potent benzos. And when they asked the patient, like, where did you get it from? It was like, oh, yeah, I bought it online from a supplier in the Pacific Northwest. Mm. So these things are, you know, they move and we kind of have to be aware of it. So where does fentanyl come from and why is it finding its way into Coke, which is, by the way, a drug that you would take for a completely different type of experience than you would an opioid. So it's right. it's an odd thing to combine to be. Yeah. So like Coke is an upper and meth is an upper. Um, mm -hmm. And when you hear if you hear people talking about sleepy Coke, then uh. that is usually like a sign like. There's something bad. Get away. <laughs> don't, don't, don't hang no, out with the Jesus. people. Hey, man, you want some sleepy Coke? No. This does the opposite of what normal. You should not do not do that. Right. Creepy. It's, it's bad, you know, and it's like, but those are, but it's important to know kind of like, like people aren't testing. People don't have labs everywhere, right? Testing what they're putting in yeah. their bodies. And so we need like cues to understand um, kind of how people actually talk about it in a way. Yeah. And our whole point is to try to help people make better decisions about what they put in their bodies. It mm -hmm. isn't about like, it's, we celebrate any positive change that the individual defines for themselves. And if that means going from using 10 times a day to three times a day, that's great. Like I would rather have that than like 10 times a day, problematic use continuing in, perpet in perpetuity. Right. And then, when they get to three and they are ready to go down to two or one, like, great. Like we're happy to help you get to that point. And here's some strategies to get you even lower. And if you want to get off, like here's other resources that can help you do that. So that's, that's a wonderful treatment model to meet people where they're at. Uh, but I still got to know where's all this fentanyl coming from and why is it, why is it in our Coke? So the or in, in, sorry, in, in, in the world's Coke, it's not my Coke. <laughs> I don't have any Coke. Uh, 
the fentanyl is so it's largely being manufactured in Mexico by like two specific cartels and the precursors like the raw ingredient is mostly coming from China and it's being processed in Mexico. Now, one of those cartels recently like in the last couple of months has said they're going to stop shipping fentanyl to the US. Um, oh, okay. And why? We don't really understand, but um, it was. Did they also- do a press conference? Like, or did they did they expect applause? Like, what's going on? Yeah, actually, they kind of <laughs> did. <laughs> really? Did. Yeah, it was like they did a press uh, interview in the Wall Street Journal. It was timed during the Bi- like President Biden's visit to Mexico. What? It was coincident with like other policy announcements that the Mexican government was making. Yeah, so it was like a PR moment. And wow. And it shows how by the big and powerful and impervious these cartels are or how how normalized they are as sort of part of the power structure uh, for that to be the case. That's right. And we've I mean, that was like two months ago or three months ago. And in like some of the southwest border areas where you see a lot of kind of early stage stuff coming over from the southern across the southern border, we are already hearing about less fentanyl, more old school heroin. Um, mm. So I don't know. It might be a fluke, but where does it come from? So like there's something called the iron law prohibition, which is that um, the more you crack down on a drug, the more likely it's going to get to become uh, more potent, more concentrated um, because when you're transporting, you assume that there's going to be a certain percentage loss from interdiction, right? A right. certain portion of your product is going to get, captured by cops. And so when you do the economic modeling, the way to get over that kind of uh, interdiction is to put more that in a more condensed way so you can have a higher margin on what gets across. Right. Um, So that's kind of the origins of fentanyl. Fentanyl, as you told me the first time we met, is not a new drug. It's an old drug, but it's far more potent and concentrated than heroin. And so- we crack down on opioids. Well, they needed a, a more potent replacement. This is the most potent thing available, and that's why it starts over. And that's an economic reason. It's not because – that's what was fascinating, fascinated me about fentanyl because the users I've talked to on the streets don't like it. They're like, ah, it's too concentrated. Mm-hmm. Ooh, give me the old stuff. Where, where do yep. I get my normal heroin? But they can't. Right. Why can't they? Because – the way we have cracked down on opioids has created an economic incentive for the cartels and the other various people running it to start to switch to that drug for economic reasons. That's right. Fascinating. The same, same way like during alcohol prohibition in the US, right? You think about speakeasies. Speakeasies weren't serving beer, right? Like they weren't mm. like serving IPAs and craft booze. I mean, craft beer. They were serving right. alcohol. I mean, spirits like hard liquor yeah. because that's high proof. And, you know, it's the same pattern. It just happens over and over and over again in American society. And even before that, right, when we're thinking about these supply chains for these products, like heroin and fentanyl are different in one fundamental way, because in that heroin grows out of poppies in the ground, whereas fentanyl is synthesized completely in a lab. And so, right, so that's like a very different kind of supply chain that mm-hmm. and it's kind of like one of these consequences of globalization as a broader 
trend over the last couple of decades that you can move large amounts of raw material to produce in different countries and ship back to other countries. That's the same thing. So what this is making me realize, you know, when people talk about the the drug epidemic on the street, even just, you know, people here in L.A. are concerned about or whatever, whatever city it might be, are concerned about the number of fentanyl overdoses, about that making life in our city worse. What can we do about it? We always talk about drug treatment programs, getting people off the streets, all stuff that's well and good and important. But what you're making me realize is the reason for the fentanyl epidemic, it's a supply chain issue. It's like starting at the top. It's the macroeconomic incentives that are causing this to happen. And so something needs to change on that level, unlike the federal government level or what's happening in Mexico on a national level or something. So it needs to be that big of a change because otherwise you're just sort of, you know, trying to trying to fuss around the edges. You're not actually making a difference. Does that seem correct? That does. And I think that's like a yeah, I think a top that's like the top down approach, right? And we've been trying to do that for decades too, right? Mm. There's been all sorts of, you know, DA and Mexican government attempts to take down the cartels and to stop how much is crossing the border. At this, like, if we, if we, be, so drugs are kind of this free market in a lot of ways. And if we believe in these market forces, then the part that we've kind of left out of the equation all along is that the role that the consumers have in trying to push back against some of these, some of these mm. problems. And I think we're at this stage where if we look back at the historical antecedents and kind of the pro forma way that policy has tried to address the problem, it has clearly failed, right? Our yeah. current approach sucks. Like if 100,000 people a year are dying, it's not working. Yeah. So a more kind of bringing the consumers back into the picture, I think is a really fascinating newer idea that brings agency to individuals. And you know, how do we get them to push back against their suppliers and say like, I don't want fentanyl. I don't want this, right? Wait, this is this is sort of, I, I want to pull apart this idea a little bit because it, it at first it sounds insane to me because you're talking about sort of consumer activism in the same way it's like, hey, don't buy pl plastic packaged products. Buy something made of cardboard instead, which I kind of think of as being a facile and, and pathetic form of activism generally. Are you proposing that drug users do the same thing? Hey, Mr. Drug Supplier, you know what? You're not, uh, is that ethically sourced heroin or are you serving me some fentanyl made in the lab? Uh-uh. I think I'm going to go to the farmer's market and get some of the good heroin. Is that, it, you must be talking about something more serious than my very silly caricature I just said. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, that, but that caricature is pretty close. I mean, but the point here isn't like that we're trying to just say like condone the drug use and say like, oh yeah, you should get whatever you want and have like all your choices. Like that's not, that's not kind of the direction for this. It's like, Right now, the solutions that we've been trying to do for decades haven't worked. We need more allies and more, you know, groundswell, ground grassroots ways to address the problem. Like the the if you if you go around the country and talk to communities that have been severely devastated by overdose, you feel this pervading sense of hopelessness that they can't do anything about it. Mm. And this goes back to the same kind of narrative about like, if we only think of this as a top down problem of uh -huh. like policy and international, we're going to feel stuck. There's not enough that we can do. 
And some of these forces are so big that we feel really small. Um, like in rural towns in Appalachia, like trying to get the Sinaloa cartel to stop shipping fentanyl, like it's just not something that's in their, you know, intervention policy toolkit, right? And so kind of working with people on the ground who use drugs to understand what they're putting in their bodies, why they're doing it and getting at kind of the primary reasons why they're using drugs in the first place is super important. Uh, finding out like kind of what their options are for non-judgmental treatment when they're ready for treatment. Like those are things that we can do. And for people who are not ready to go down that pathway of getting sober, like, we need things to keep them alive so that they are alive and can recover. And so, yeah. It seems like what you're talking about a little bit is taking this kind of drug use out of the shadows that, that, you know, people who use these drugs are so often marginalized, made invisible. And, you know, to the extent that they are using them, you know, or that, or that we are aware of people using them sort of treated as, Oh, that's your own fault. Wow. Oh, horrible. You know, uh, just what, what a shameful thing. What a thing you wouldn't want to talk about. You know, obviously people are, you know, that sort of use is criminalized, uh, widely, but if instead we had a little bit of normalization in the way of say, Hey, we've got millions of Americans using these drugs, um, for all sorts of reasons and they deserve safety and uh, to not have an adulterated drug supply. And they could say that a little bit more openly and the rest of us could speak up for them as well. Maybe that's, is that sort of what you're talking about? Saying like, hey, we've got fucking drug users in this country. A great step would be if they weren't having adulterated drugs or if the drug supply was better. And, and just sort of saying that loudly in a, uh, is that sort of what you're talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think like, you know, there's, there's, if you look at the modeling of the trajectory of the overdose problem, there's these great modelers out of Harvard who show like under the most optimistic scenarios where we like dump tons of resources into this, we're still looking at like a eight to 10 years before it gets back down to, you know, levels that we saw before 2000, the calendar wow. year 2000. And so we're going to have people dying. It's a lot of people dying and there's a lot, you know, there's kind of the, the next stage of kind of going beyond just like criminalization of individuals is like, okay, addiction is a brain disease. This is, um, you know, adverse childhood experiences. So maybe you had experienced some sort of sexual trauma as a child and you're using drugs to stay alive. Um, like those narratives are kind of the next level of compassion that is quite popular in the science arena. Um, but those also tend to like kind of put the agency away from the individual and the current time and pin it back to these things that happened a decade ago or things that are beyond our control. And so one of the kind of counter arguments to this general approach is that we should be re-stigmatizing drug use and re-stigmatizing drugs. And I think this is a kind of a natural reaction to, to, for folks who don't understand what it's like on the ground. And I think the missing part of that equation is compassion, right? It's like, we're yeah. not going to just try to like substitute one drug for another and say, okay, just keep doing what you're doing. It's going to be like, 
cool. All right, let's get you stabilized so you're not in withdrawal. And hey, how about getting you a driver's license? How about let's get you, you know, signed up for a work program or let's get you, you know, let's like find you a better place to live or let's get you out of that abusive situation. And there's a lot more care that goes on to address the upstream causes of that drug use that kind of gets put to the shadows when we only focus on the molecules or like clean syringes and the reversal agent, right? It's not just molecules. It's like a whole holistic, compassionate approach that helps people in a more fundamental way than just saying like, take this other drug and this is better for you. And I love the focus on the agency that that any sort of mental model that is taking agency away from the person is maybe one to be avoided. And any that uh, supports their agency, supports them making choices, supports them as the active movers in their lives is going to be more valuable. I'm curious if you think that, look, the examples I used at the beginning of this about, you know, the the kid who died at the school in L.A. and, you know, my friend's birthday party. Right. What do those two examples have in common? Those are like uh, nice white people, right? Like that, that, that fentanyl has reached sort of suburban middle class uh, America to the extent that parents are going, oh, my God, I have talked to my like, again, white suburban parents are saying, <laughs> oh, my God, I have to talk to my kids about fentanyl. What the fuck is going on? Um, yep. It has become so widespread that there are very few parts of American society that are insulated from it. I'm curious if you think that that could cause any, you know, thaw in our attitude towards these drugs um, that that maybe is could help us build some compassion since it is touching so many parts of America now. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we can't have a serious drug, serious conversation about drugs in America without talking about race and privilege. And that is, you know, just a fundamental reality that drug laws get enforced disproportionately against minority communities and yep. that the realization that these that these substances can end up in white people's bodies is kind of a it, it has been like a societal learning process over the last like decade and a half. And yeah. And, and by the way, I sort of glided over the fact that there's a pattern in American life where a social problem is only taken seriously once it affects affluent white people. And that's right. so I sort of presented that as like, Hey, maybe things will get better now that that's happening. It's still an ugly social problem that that's, we only take things seriously at that point, but that's right. that point has been reached in the case it of has. this issue. It has. And, you know, and I think, there's, I mean, I do a lot of work in Appalachia and kind of rural parts of the South. And, you know, th- those problems appear, the problems with overdose appeared there 15, 20 years ago. And so it's not just a matter of race. There's also like huge class differences. And uh, like one of the counties I worked in was Wilkes County in kind of the Appalachian foothills in Northwestern North Carolina. And they, when we started, they had the third highest drug overdose death rate in the country. Wow. And we were able to bring that down like 70% and keep it down. But uh, through this like community wide intervention. But one of the questions at that time was like, why Wilkes? Like, why would this like one county have such a big problem? And Wilkes County is also the birthplace of NASCAR. Mm. Do you know why that would be related? Why? No, I, ah, no, I don't. So are people, people huffing gas? I don't know. What is it? <laughs> so if you have like, so if you have like a regular car that's stripped down, looks like a normal car and can go really fast, right? Then that's like where moonshine. Of course. 
right? You yes, you you can you can smuggle. I I knew about this. I knew this about the history of NASCAR that it was like yep. uh, smuggling related uh, during the Prohibition era, right? That's right. Yep. So this county was like the birthplace of NASCAR, NASCAR because it had particularly strong moonshining as a historical antecedent. When I first started working up there and, you know, kind of talking about drug use in a more compassionate way from a public health standpoint, uh, I was presenting at this um, community meeting and this like the oldest person in the room, this white, old white dude with a bow tie comes up and he's like, son, what's your name again? And I told him, and he's like, that's not a Wilkes name now, is it? And (laughs) yes, sir, it's not. And he's like, I'm going to tell you something. We don't need people from the outside coming in and telling us what to do because we already know that we can't lock up our sons for providing for their families. We've been doing it for generations. So give us the tools, teach us how to do it and let us take care of this problem. Wow. Well, and it goes to show how this kind of drug use of any kind is, you know, an ancient human thing, right? That like moonshine, I mean, we call it moonshining. Humans have been fermenting shit into alcohol (laughs) since uh, for thousands of years. It's one of the oldest forms of agriculture or whatever, right? It's like up there with the birth of agriculture. Totally. Um, And so, of course, a bunch of people in Appalachia. Or just yeah, we can make our own booze. What do you what are you gonna fucking do? Right. <laughs> um, just like I got a garden in the back and I got a bathtub full of gin. Like, what are you gonna stop me doing? And yep. you know, opioids are fundamentally kind kind of the same thing. I mean, the the human desire to get fucked up is part of humanity. It's universal, <laughs> right? Yeah. It is. It is, and it's like I mean, the historical part is so fascinating because if you okay, this is gonna seem like it's from out of left field, but like. The reason why the European powers were looking for a better route to the West Indies or to the Indies was because of spices, right? That's the narrative mm-hmm. we just we know. Yeah. But, if you, but like they weren't looking for spices, spices because the food in Europe was crappy at the time. It was more because spices were the pharmaceuticals of the medieval age. Whoa. So cinnamon that we just like you know have on cinnamon. Like, you know, cinnamon raisin bread, whatever, like that cinnamon was considered to be um, a life saving drug that was could bring people back from the dead because it was believed to be harvested from the nest of the phoenix, like the mythical bird that <laughs> bursts into flame and comes back to life. And like black, I, I heard that's where a cloak comes from, actually, is from the nest of the phoenix. I'm sorry, please go on. <laughs> and, like uh, black pepper, just like regular table pepper. Uh, was the medieval Viagra, and you could like pay your taxes in Viagra in London back in medieval times, right? And cloves and nutmeg and all these spices had like very specific medicinal properties. And if you look back at the illuminated manuscripts from that era, you see exactly the same rhetoric of these being like you know devil drugs, and they're some of them have these like psychoactive properties, like. You know, they can make you horny or whatever, right? And the the rhetoric hasn't changed. It's almost verbatim the same. And like in one of Dante's like circles of hell in the Inferno is someone who uh, is put there because they they figured out how to use cloves. And that was like what damned them to hell. And they created a market that made cloves expensive and da-da-da-da. It's amazing how fundamental that is. And by the way, you can look at, there's so many other stories from the colonial period, 
opium and uh, mm-hmm. even tea as a, exactly. you know, uh, as a source of caffeine. Uh, it really, drugs have made the world go round uh, for as long as humanity has been around. Incredible. We have to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Nasdaq Gupta. So I want to ask you, uh, at the same time that we've seen skyrocketing rates of overdoses and sort of a panic in this country around fentanyl and opioids, there's also been, in my experience, just anecdotally over the last five years, an unprecedented like liberalization of our attitudes towards all other types of drugs. And by our, I mean, again, like affluent, mainstream, largely white America. Uh, Weed legalization is obviously exploding all over the country. Uh, I would have to say, in my opinion, that's largely a good thing with a lot of problems. But, you know, a lot of us go, oh, my God, long time coming. But at the same time, I've started to notice a lot of other drugs exploding in popularity. Psychedelics, there's been a lot of coverage of them over the last five years. Michael Pollan wrote a book, an entire book about how great psychedelics were, and now they're doing research and you know them being used as treatment for, for depression. I've covered that stuff on the show. What has surprised me, though, is how much, how the, how the legal drug market has changed or the semi-legal drug market has changed. So I was just at a friend's party a couple weeks ago and he says, hey, we got some drugs at the party. I thought he was going to give me, you know, like a, what's a party in L.A.? I thought he was going to hand me a weed gummy. And then he pulls out a he pulls out a bag of gummies packaged with a logo and like a cool photo on it and everything. Bag of gummies that had uh, psilocybin and MDMA in them. And he was like, it's a little micro dose. A couple of us, you know, makes you feel a little glowy, whatever. I had not even been aware that this was a product that you could buy. Like this looked like something that would be sold at a weed dispensary in LA. And I've seen just over the last couple of years, just if you want to get mushrooms, right? Mm-hmm. It go from, hey, I know a guy to, hey, my friend makes chocolates to, hey, there's a website, you fill out a form and then they'll call you and make sure you're legit and send you chocolates to, here's a website, you just put in your credit card information and they will send you psilocybin, you know, mushroom chocolate, just direct from Colorado, right? It's like gone very, very quickly. And mm-hmm. um, uh, I find that kind of interesting and weird because it, it I mean, psilocybin is not legal in America, right? It is not, right. we've not had uh, the process that we went through over like 20 years to get to where weed legalization is today. So That's it right. seems like there's sort of an exploding, you know, legit or gray market industry around all these other drugs just very recently. Have you, uh, so you're the perfect person to ask, is this really happening? Cause it's literally just been my experience so far. Your experience is spot on. We see this a lot. Um, and we call it psychedelic exceptionalism where mm. the psychedelics are kind of treated as, you know, as plant medicines having kind of native, you know, indigenous roots with it, with indigenous communities and, uh, sometimes they're like ayahuasca is sometimes called a sacrament and there's a lot more mythology and process and cultural, I don't know, nuance surrounding them. Um, but at the, at a fundamental level, you're right. Like the amount of psilocybin that's going into brains in the United States has probably increased a hundred fold from like a decade ago. That's just guessing on numbers and um and what we you know so it's i think it's a a combination of psilocybin mdma or ecstasy it's dmt or ayahuasca and ketamine those four in particular i think are having a moment 
Um, yeah. And, you know, it's like we, we sometimes see ketamine mixed into weed or into meth. I mean, there's a lot of, it's like you have kind of this like permissiveness in society around these. And then that bleeds over into kind of the harder drug illicit markets that traditionally have existed. And people, you know, it's just a very confusing mix. But a yeah. lot of times people who are using one are also using the other. And, um, there's crossover. And it's interesting because there are there are legitimate medicinal uses for almost all of these. I mean, I have friends who told me, and, and I really believe them, they're not fucking around, that they cured their depression with psilocybin or that they treated really bad depression with ketamine. These are being used in clinical or quasi-clinical settings, uh, you know, for real. Uh, but at the same time, it was it's just a little bit like. Again, I'm looking at that packet of gummies, right? I'm going like, I, wait, where did this actually come from, though? And like, mm -hmm. why is this person? It's very interesting that there's some company that's packaging the shit. They're making a label. They're putting a little percentage of how much is it on the thing. Right. They're, process, they're processing it at some kind of factory, right? And yep. they must feel the feds aren't going to come for us, right? Even though there are two federally scheduled drugs on this and it's not weed that seems kind of new that there must be something a little bit different about either our enforcement regime or that the belief about the mar uh, in the market about whether or not they'll be enforced do you have any view about that that's right yes i think exactly what you said like the belief of what you get in trouble for um so it's like it's, it's fascinating in like um in drug crime psychology there the deterrent doesn't come from like how long a drug sentence is it comes from whether you're going to get caught in the first place or not mm -hmm. um and so what you know this kind of blooming of the market is probably exactly what you said like people thinking that they're not going to get caught um at the same time like they're trying to make a buck right like drugs and money are intimately linked and that's what the market is demanding right now. And that demand is coming from, you know, all sorts of kind of upstream sources. And this is where it goes back to agency and autonomy again and again and again, because if people like if for your friends who use psilocybin to treat their depression, right? The traditional routes of going to a doctor, getting it covered by insurance, the pharmaceutical version of these products, like that whole process of getting help for depression is like removes so much agency at every single step that it is not mm. what people necessarily want. Like people want new ways to deal with old problems. And if the regulated, legit mainstream marketplace isn't nimble enough to deliver on that, the illicit marketplace is going to. Yeah. And it also seems like that's an extremely good point. First of all, um, it also seems like that is helping with a certain sort of normalization. Like here, at least from again, this is like my friend group, the sort of people I'm around. Right. But you've got on the one hand, legal weed that like has a certain sort of packaging and people are used to seeing served in a certain way. And they say, ah, oh, that's safe. Right. Because I've I, it's sold to me this way. Then there's the culture of, hey, I have a friend who's like a psilocybin, you know, treatment person and you can go to them and they'll, they, you know, it's not, uh, you, you know, they co it costs a couple hundred bucks. You can't get it through your insurance, but it's really, really legit because they really did their research and all that. Right. Um, and then you've got those two things sort of combining such mm -hmm. that somebody gets a little packet of gummies that says 0.5% psilocybin on or whatever. And they say, ah, 
that's legit in both ways. And it right, just sort exactly. of, but it just kind of looks legit, right? Like, like right. I, I was like, I don't actually understand the supply chain. The reason I didn't take a gummy from my friend, he, and I'm not saying it was unsafe what he was handing me, mm-hmm. but I was like, I don't understand the supply chain well enough, but I see how this looks super safe in all these, in both of those ways, right? And yep serves to normalize it. I could see most uh, people who I would hang out with in America being handed that and say, ah, that looks safe to me. Oh yeah, I have friends who do that. It's no big deal. And that's a big difference from just 10 years ago. Um, that, that's that right. th- like, So the drug, what's interesting is it seems like the drug culture in a lot of America, not just the, you know, uh, the folks using fentanyl on the corner, but again, affluent middle-class America has really changed over the last couple of years in, in a kind of fascinating way. Yeah, it has. And it's like, you know, it's like, these are all unregulated products. And even like when you go get melatonin to put your kids to sleep from a grocery store or pharmacy, even that is unregulated. Like the Mm. amount of melatonin in those gummies are, is also not something that is like standardized and, quality controlled. It's just whatever the company wants to put in there yeah. uh, because of like arcane FDA rules. But, um, but the same kind of, it's easy to, in our, in our world today where we can 3d print anything, where we can make, you know, use Canva to make cool looking graphics. Like it's easy to have the trappings of legitimacy yeah. and, you know, it doesn't change like the shittiness of the product that's going in that package. And yeah, we've seen we've seen cases of like of overdoses happening because people it looked like regular weed, but it turned out to have weird opioids in it or weird other chemicals in it that were causing serious harms. And people bought it thinking that it just looked like a normal package of weed that they were used to getting. So this is kind of a really bad time to be doing drugs in America. Um, <laughs> it's kind of the bottom line. Uh, and that's. Odd because I think for a lot of people, it feels like a great time to be doing drugs because so many drugs seem legal or quasi legal and available, right? Where yep. it's a lot of stuff again for, and I keep drawing, the, drawing, this, drawing this comparison between affluent folks and, you know, uh, the, the, the stereotype of a drug user on the street. I don't mean that one of those groups of people is better than the other. I'm just drawing the distinction between like, you know, what we often think of as a mainstream society and and how that changes overall attitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it feels like that there's been a there's been a large normalization, but that normalization comes with an assumption of safety that That's might right. not be there. That's right. I absolutely. I absolutely agree. I think the normalization is a double edged sword, right? If it if it leads to less stigma and people having more agency, people being able to decide what they put in their bodies like that's great less incarceration is great for people with you know addictions and at the same time like we can't be duped into a false sense of security it's like again like drugs and money go hand in hand and they always have and always will yeah and you know and that's why i brought up like even the example of the European, you know, powers trying to find new shipping routes, right? They weren't doing it because of flavor. It was because of money and yeah. drugs and money are going to go hand in hand and people are going to take advantage of any system that is not super tightly regulated and watched to make a quick buck. And I think that's part of like the fundamental reason why fentanyl has changed. I mean, one of the questions I get a lot is like, is, you know, why would, 
of why would someone want to be making a product that kills their customers, right? Like it doesn't yeah. make any economic sense to do that. And it's kind of like with houses, right? Like where you have all these people flipping houses and changing neighborhoods by by doing that. Mm. The barrier to entry to getting into the dope game is now lower than it has been um, for decades. And so before there was a bit of pride and control that the organized crime um, organizations would have and exert to have, you know, somewhat quality product so that their reputation could build. Now, because it's so easy to get a kilo of fentanyl and flip it, you can even buy it on credit now, which is unheard of. Um, then like you don't have people who are in it for brand reputation. They're in it to make a quick buck and get on with whatever else they actually want to do with their lives. Right. Oh, so you just do it a little bit on the side, just like someone's like, oh yeah, we just have a little real estate side also. We buy pro- buy yeah, buy houses and flip them. <laughs> I guess sometimes I just buy a kilo and you know cut it, cut it and flip it, right? Chop it up a little bit and uh send it out to the corner boys and you know, make myself a quick meal and then move on. Yeah, that is what's wow. happening. Well, Look, it seems like it's a Wild West time right now in both the sort of cartel side of the drug market and the sort of weird, you know, we put it in baggies and and ship it out from Denver, <laughs> a quasi legal mm-hmm. market that I'm talking about um, with a lot of bad effects. Uh, and again, this to me, it seems like a, like an argument for mass legalization of these drugs. You didn't, I didn't bring you on here to like come up with a big policy prescription, but like when People of all walks of life are dying. All drug users, no matter their background, deserve safety, right? And if we actually had regulation, a big part of the problem seems to be we don't know what's in the shit. So that seems to be an argument for simply making this stuff as legal as we can and then regulating it at least as well as we do pharmaceuticals, which are not, there's a lot of bad things about the pharmaceutical industry, but at the very least, when I get my amphetamines from the psychiatrist and it says this many milligrams, I know that there's that many milligrams in it and that there's nothing else in it. I do at least have that confidence that it's not adulterated with some other substance or that there isn't radically more or less than I expected. Uh, So, I mean, is that something that is that where your mind goes as well? It does. But I'm also a pragmatist on this and that like, yeah. You know, it's like if we switch to legalize all drugs today, there would also be huge collateral damage to society that we would not be tolerating. And that experiment mm. would get shut down immediately. Like what? So, I mean, we see this in with like decriminalization in Oregon right now, uh, where the people of Oregon voted to decriminalize. So get rid of the criminal penalties, but not legalize um, all drugs. And so the the consequences of that have taken you know yes there's been less arrests and kind of some of the the negative societal consequences especially around race have been tempered but the amount of drug use seems like there's been a blowback because it's not enough to stop the overdoses that are happening because mm. a it hasn't taken given been given enough time to work but also like decriminalization is not the same as a regulated legal market yeah where you still like even in port- places like portugal where they've done like nationwide decriminalization talking to our colleagues in labs there that test the street drugs 
they're saying that, you know, the drug supply is still as fucked up as always. It's just people don't get arrested for it in the same way, but it doesn't make the drugs necessarily like all that much safer. So if we're going to think about like the nuances of decrim versus legalization, I think that's really important, but mm-hmm. going to a legal market, I mean, I think the, the more pragmatic place to start is people who have been shooting heroin for like 20 years and fentanyl for 20 years and are, you know, have tried like every kind of drug treatment known to man and are still kind of stuck and really want to get off of it. Working with those folks to see whether like heroin prescribing is, is a intervention that's been done in Canada and Europe. And that's like a really good starting place to like test out some of these ideas about what legalization should work, could look like. And that's why I bring up the Canadian example of when they tried to do that, they ended up like having to use this suboptimal form of a pharmaceutical medication that created this huge pill burden. People dropped out of that trial, even though they were getting free drugs from the government, right? They still, it wasn't in a way that actually helped them stop or curtail their use in a way that was meaningful to them. So legalization, great as a concept, but like having been in this field for 20 years, it's like, we keep hearing about this conversation, but like the, but when it, the people who are dealing with the practicalities of it are kind of faced with all these practical issues that kind yeah. of make it a lot more complicated. That makes sense. Like I can sit here and say, Hey, looks like all the problems that we have are because this one class of drugs is illegal. Uh, mm-hmm. That that's why we've got all these supply chain issues that are causing all these deaths. And if it was simply, you know, right next to pharmaceuticals in terms of government regulation, FDA and all that sort of thing, if we had that regulatory regime, we wouldn't have this problem. And it's all well and good for me to sit here and say, hey, legalize it, man. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but how do we get there from here is a much is a much more difficult question to answer. Totally. Um, totally. And I I completely acknowledge that. Uh, are there any other steps that you uh, suggest that we take immediately in order to, uh, you know, at the very least, prevent deaths from all of this. Yeah, I mean, I, the testing of the drugs has been like a really fascinating um, kind of evolution over the last couple of years. I mean, again, like having done this for twenty years and having lost a lot of friends to overdose and not seeing that much progress. And if anything, like the shit's gotten worse, right? The overdoses have gotten worse, and so. Seeing that one of the few game changers that I've noticed in my career has been like the drug checking where people can get their drugs tested. And what we hear repeatedly is the word options. Like when people find out what's actually in their drug supply, people come back and ask for what are my options to get to not put this in my body. Mm. And that like I have not seen any other public health intervention where like literally in front of my eyes, people would find out what's in their drugs, like their, what they thought was fentanyl, but it had some like very toxic uh, adulterant in it and like throw it away. You know, like do you see people throwing away drugs with other kinds of interventions? No. And even like uh, in some of the instances we've heard of people taking back results from drug checking to suppliers and saying like, Hey, this, there's like some super potent unknown, you know, experimental opioid in this batch. This is killing people. Look, here's what it is. And they destroy those batches. Like, wow. 
Okay, this is this is when you were telling me about consumers pushing back on suppliers. Now I'm seeing how this really works. That's incredible. It is. And it's been it was not something we expected to happen, but it's like I don't know. Like we see we hear those stories every week of like people wanting to make better decisions about what they put in their bodies. And I think like we don't respect people. We have this kind of mental model that drugs will make you a zombie will kind of hijack all your decision-making power. And yeah, when you're in like the super deep throes of addiction, those things do happen. And, but that happens to like a relatively small portion of maybe like 10%, 15% of all people who use drugs. And if you can get the people who have a little bit more, you know, physiological agency over what they put in their bodies to push back against the suppliers, you actually see legit changes in what's in the street. That's incredible. I love the focus on agency and you're making me feel very guilty for my glib farmer's market joke about 20 minutes ago. I apologize. <laughs> uh, that, that That's amazing. And the fact that you, you respect the, the users of these drugs and their, their own agency to improve the situation is, is really inspiring to me. I, I love the work that you do. I couldn't thank you enough for being here, Nab. Where can people find out more about your work? Uh, and, uh, w- w- you know, w- where can they find some more resources on this? Yeah. So our, our, our nonprofit that distributes naloxone in bulk, that's the antidote for reversing an overdose is remedyalliancefTP.org. And then our uh, drug testing service is through UNC and that is streetsafe.supply. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on, Neb. It's been incredible. It's been my, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for this great conversation. Well, thank you once again to Nab for coming on the show and thank you to everybody who supports us on Patreon. Just a reminder, five bucks a month gets you every episode of the show ad-free. For 15 bucks a month, I will read your name at the end of this podcast and put it in the credits to every single one of my video monologues. This week, I want to thank Sean Robin, Robbie Wilson, Tracy Adams, Jason Lefebvre, Alex Babinski, Brendan Peterman, Ultra Czar, Busy B, and Josh Davies. Thank you so much for your support and for making this show possible. For the rest of you, head to patreon.com slash Conover if you want to join our community. I also want to thank our producers, Sam Roudman and Tony Wilson, everybody here at HeadGum for making this show happen. Uh, You can find me online at adamconover.net. You can also get my tickets and tour dates there. Just to remind you, coming up, I'm headed to Arlington, Virginia, New York, Philly, Boston, Portland, Maine, Chicago, Nashville, Atlanta. I probably left out a couple. Head to adamconover.net for tickets and tour dates, and I'll see you very soon for another episode of Factually. That was a HeadGum Podcast.